This is History West Midlands. Birmingham is the home of one of the largest Irish populations in Britain. Indeed, the Irish have played a prominent part in the life of this multicultural city for more than 200 years, as migration has ebbed and flowed when economic circumstances have changed in the two countries. Attracted by the promise of work since the days of the Industrial Revolution, the Irish community and their descendants built much of the modern city. During the post-war reconstruction of Birmingham, it was Irish voices which were commonly heard on the great construction projects, such as the Inner Ring Road, the Bull Ring and Spaghetti Junction, and by the 1960s, one in six children born in Birmingham had at least one parent from Ireland. Today, our Irish heritage is celebrated annually with one of the largest St Patrick's Day parades in the world, attended by an estimated 100,000 people. In this programme, social historian and author, Professor Carl Chin, explains the often difficult beginnings of the Irish community in Birmingham. It was the first mass migration of people to Birmingham, the black country, from outside England, that of Irish folk from Galway, Mayo and Roscommon in the west of Ireland. From the mid-1820s onwards, thousands upon thousands of them made their laborious way across the Irish Sea, forced from their homes by a cauldron of hardships. With a growing population in Ireland, many poor families had moved onto marginal land that could not support them, but benefiting from a high demand, landlords pushed up their rents. This was at a time when bad harvest led to famine conditions that blighted the already unhappy lives of the rural poor. Pushed out by precarious livings and the greed of the wealthy, many from the West became spalpeens, seasonal agricultural labourers. Little is known of the first of them to move to the West Midlands, and the route that they took is uncertain. Some may have trudged towards Sligo Town and caught a boat there, whilst others may have slogged across the Irish Midlands to Dublin. Here they would have taken the cattle boat to Liverpool, paying threepence for a rough passage on deck. Those long and choppy sailings must have been frightening when the winds blew fiercely and the waves of the Irish Sea surged powerfully. Writing in 1892, the journalist and Irish nationalist John Denver explained that. The hardy Connacht men generally passed through Liverpool on their way to the English agricultural counties. It was a sight to remember. The vast armies of harvestmen clad in frieze coats and knee breeches, with their clean white shirts with high collars and tough blackthorns, marching literally in their thousands from the Clarence Dock Liverpool and up the London Road to reap John Bull's harvest. From Liverpool, the Spalpeen spread out across Lancashire, Cheshire, Staffordshire and Warwickshire in search of crops to bring in, farmers needing labour and cash to earn. Sometimes these men and women stayed on the farms, but often they rented a bed in dreary, dank and low lodging houses in the poorest areas of Stafford, Wolverhampton and Birmingham. Still, some of these folk made up their minds not to return home after fetching in the harvest in the English Midlands. Instead, they called for their families to join them in settling in a foreign land where nobody but they spoke Irish and where they were marked out further by their Catholicism and their ways. 
It is likely that most of these Irish men and women arrived in the black country in Birmingham via Manchester, the Potteries, Newcastle under Lyme and Stafford. A snatch of evidence about some of these early migrants is provided by the 1851 census. It records a 40-year-old blacksmith called John Noon, living at 24 Smallbrook Street, Birmingham, with his wife Jane and two cousins. All were from Roscommon. Three other cousins lodged at the house, Mary Noon, aged 15, 28-year-old John and 27-year-old Thomas Noon. They were born in Birmingham, suggesting that members of the Noon family had moved from Roscommon sometime in the early 1820s and thus they were amongst those who had provided the bridgehead for others to follow. Nearby in Wolverhampton, the Irish had settled in large numbers in and around Caribbean Island. Bounded by Stafford Street, Back Lane, Carberry Street and Canal Street, later called Broad Street, this block of decrepit properties made a distinct area that was notorious for its vile living conditions. In 1840, the local doctor John Gattis wrote that in one year there had been 134 cases of typhus in Wolverhampton. Of these, 49 were in Caribbean Island and its adjoining courts. An open sewer ran through the centre of Caribbean Island and rubbish and filth was piled up by the houses because there was no refuse removal. Gattis emphasised both the extreme poverty locally, owing to the local people not having the necessary articles of subsistence, and the marked overcrowding of dwellings, which hastened the spread of diseases. Number 8 Caribbean Island highlighted this problem of overcrowding. It was lived in by Michael McHale, an Irishman, with his wife Catherine and 13 other people. Driven out of their own land by poverty, the vast majority of the Irish of the West Midlands had to take on any job, no matter how hard, dirty or ill-paid. But the work that they did was vital. Giving evidence to the report on the state of the Irish poor in Birmingham in 1834, George Redfern, prison keeper and deputy constable of Birmingham, reported that most Irishmen locally were employed as builders or plasterers labourers. His opinions were supported by William White, a builder, who stressed the steadiness of his Irish workers and commented on how they sent money home to their families in Ireland. Similarly, James Holmes, a plasterer, praised his Irish employees for their hard work, honesty and ingenuity, and he emphasised that We could not do without him. 21 years later, and as a clerk to the Poor Law Guardians of Birmingham, James Corder told the Select Committee on Poor Removal that very few of the Irish locally were artisans. He believed that they were generally employed as hard-working labourers. It was a view held strongly by A.M. Sullivan in 1856 when he wrote that the Irish of Birmingham are poor to a man and chiefly bricklayers' labourers. With the English working class favouring work in factories and workshops, it was the Irish who built much of Birmingham in a period of massive population growth. Still, because of low wages, they were compelled to rent only the worst slum properties in the most squalid yards. Bad as their conditions were in the early 1840s, they deteriorated further in the later years of the decade with a mass influx of their fellows from the West because of the famine or the Great Hunger, as it was so expressively called by the Irish. By 1845, Ireland's population had soared to 8.5 million, of which 1.5 million were landless labourers. Their most important source of food was the potato, as it was for 3 million more smallholders. The potato was eaten three times a day, leavened with salt, cabbage or fish when available, and buttermilk. In the west and much of the south of Ireland, there was little or no alternative to eat if the potato crop failed. 
At the end of 1845 and in 1846, it did so with catastrophic results. Food prices escalated dramatically and there was no government action to bring in wheat at a time when Irish landlords still exported meat and other produce. Suffering from malnutrition, the Irish poor fell victim not only to starvation but also to fatal diseases that preyed upon them because their resistance was lowered by hunger. In 1847, the famine was declared to be over because that year's crop had not failed. Nobody in power, though, realised that because of the disaster of the previous years, little seed had been available for planting, and so the potato crop was now meagre. Hunger and disease once more stalked the land, especially in the west of Ireland. With so many people seeking poor relief, the poor rates paid by property owners rocketed. Desiring to save money and not lives, landlords evicted their poorest tenants. In 1847 itself, the journalist and author Alexander Somerville toured Ireland. In Roscommon, his emotions were harrowed by what he saw. The people are going about, those who can go about, with hollow cheeks and glazed eyes, as if they had risen out of their coffins to stare upon one another. A woman told me yesterday she was starving, but it was not for herself she begged for food. She prayed for heaven to let her die and give her rest. But oh, said she, if you take pity on my poor child, for it is dying. May heaven have mercy on such a mother and such a child. They were literally skin and bone, with very little life in either of them, and food. And they were but a fraction of a population, wandering to and from a fertile land, which they are not allowed to cultivate. The poor were swept from the land, especially in the West. In Mayo, Lord Sligo issued thousands of notices to quit, trying in vain to justify his actions by stating that he was under the necessity of ejecting or being ejected. His neighbour, Lord Lucan, cleared 2,000 folk from the parish of Ballinrobe alone. Robbed of its people, the land was turned into pastoral ranches. The evicted families put up makeshift scalpines, cabins made from debris or else dug scalps, holes less than a yard deep and covered with sticks and turf. Even in these miserable homes, the poor were persecuted by evictions, so that here in Mayo many died by the roadside. This thrusting out of the desperately poor from their homes was a terrible thing. Aysnath Nicholson, the female American social observer and philanthropist, movingly told of one such eviction near Newport, Mayo. Perhaps in no instance does the oppression of the poor come before the mind so vividly as when going over the places made desolate by the famine. To see the tumbled cabins with the poor, hapless inmates who had for years sat around their turf fire and ate their potatoes together, now lingering and oft-times wailing in despair, their ragged, barefoot little ones clinging about them, one on the back of the weeping mother, and the father looking on in silent despair while a part of them are scraping among the rubbish to gather some little relic of mutual acquaintance. Then, in a flock, take their solitary pathless way to some rock or ditch to encamp supperless for the night. One of those who must have seen such ordeals was Patrick Shun. 22 years old in 1851, Patrick was a bricklayer's labourer from Ballinrobe. His wife Margaret came from Canal Roscommon and their two-year-old child was born in Birmingham, suggesting that the parents had arrived soon after the famine. 
Like so many of their fellows, they were given lodgings by others from the West. They lived at 20 Henrietta Street with Michael Monaghan, also a bricklayer's labourer, and his wife Mary, and both of whom were also from Roscommon. By 1851, so disastrous had been the deaths from the famine and so great had been the emigration that Ireland's population had dropped to 6,600,000. If estimates of natural growth are taken into account, then something like 2,400,000 people, or a quarter of the population, was missing. Scarred by their terrible experiences of starvation, illnesses, death and evictions, many more Irish people fled their island. More as refugees, the slightly better off sailed for America, whilst the poorest tended to come to England, Scotland and Wales. Heading south from Liverpool, the great majority who came to our region continued to be from the west of Ireland. They found support from those who had settled in Birmingham from the mid-1820s. It was these pioneers who provided both a link in the chain of emigration and a base for their fellows seeking a life away from discrimination and death. The support they gave is indicated in Greens Village, Birmingham, a collection of decrepit houses that had few drains and which was to be demolished later in the century for the cutting of John Bright Street. At number 12 lived James Moran, a labourer aged 35, and his wife Margaret, a servant. Both were from Roscommon. However, their children, all 12 years old and under, were born in Birmingham. The couple gave lodgings to several people from their county. All bar one were labourers. They were Catherine Moran and Mary Brennan, both of whom were relatives, John and James Gannon, and Michael and Catherine Galvin, who were from Mayo. According to the 1851 census, Greens Village had 199 people who were born in Ireland. They formed 51% of the population, and if their English-born children were added to the total, then the Irish community in the street rose to well over 60%. The places of birth of 41 of these folk are recorded. 26 were from Roscommon, five of whom originated in Strokestown. Eight came from Mayo and three had their roots in Galway. Strokestown was a place whose people had suffered grievously in the famine. In the summer of 1846, a petition of local men had exclaimed to the local landowner, Major Mahon, that Our families are well and truly suffering in our presence. We cannot much longer withstand their cries for food. We have no food for them. Our potatoes are rotten and we have no grain. It is likely that two couples in Greens Village had lived through the trauma that had beset Strokestown. William Graham, a thimble maker, and his wife Honoriath, a servant, had a four-year-old child who was born in Birmingham. The other couple was Patrick Gannon, a young blacksmith, and his 19-year-old wife Margaret, a warehouse woman. These people lived in a vile environment, as did the English poor. In Myrtle Row, in Greens Village, there was one water pump for 53 three-roomed back-to-back houses. In 1851, the correspondent of the Morning Chronicle noted that the pump that drew the water from a well was... At the extremity of the row. There had been a second pump at the other end, but it rotted away. And the property of these 53 dwellings being divided between three owners who could not agree amongst themselves... The pump had not been repaired. Between 300 and 400 people lived in Myrtle Row and the water they pumped was of a greenish colour and smelling strongly of gas as if a gas pipe had burst and were emitting a stream through it. A woman told the reporter that the water was filthy stuff and that there was not enough of it to wash the house. For drinking, she had to buy water at a halfpenny a can. Conditions for the Irish were as bad in the black country. 
in Walsall, St Mary's Catholic Church, held a Sunday Mass at eight in the morning. And it was specifically for the poor because they did not have proper clothes and did not like to appear out of doors at a later period of the day. There can be little doubt that these unfortunate folk were some of those who had fled from the famine. The Irish were pulled to Walsall and elsewhere in the black country by the hope of employment in the mines and in other industries. But they were hard and desperate days. England itself was ravaged by economic depression and mass unemployment in the 1840s. Few of the working class knew anything but the harshness of poverty. With little or no money coming in, millions suffered and the Irish were scapegoated by many. Their marked inroads, as they were put, aroused fierce antagonism and on Tuesday, May the 18th, 1847, the Liverpool Mercury reported that there had been rioting in South Staffordshire in consequence of influx of Irish labourers at Warsaw, Wensbury, whole district unsettled. The violence was sparked by a strike by labourers employed by the South Staffordshire Railway Company. Seeking to break the strike, the contractors had hired Irishmen who were believed to be working for less money. On the previous Monday, the strikers had visited the pits in the area and collected a formidable body of miners. Armed with bludgeons torn from trees and hedgerows by the side of the road, the local men marched to Warsaw. Large numbers of Irish folk had made their homes in and around Stafford Street, especially in Blue Lane East, where St Patrick's Church would be built in 1855 and 1856. The enraged mob broke down the doors and windows of houses, and some Irish men were severely beaten. The Irish party gathered together a strong force and were about to retaliate when the police sallied out upon the rioters and apprehended four of the ringleaders. Unfortunately, there was more trouble the next day. Near to Wolverhampton, almost 1,000 miners and others met. Urged on by women who were conspicuous in the angry crowd, they drove every Irishman from his employment. If they hesitated for a moment, they were attacked with sticks and assailed with volleys of stones. Many of the Irish were beaten and others had difficulty in escaping with their lives. So bad was the violence that the police had to draw their cutlasses. The following day, immense crowds of miners and others met on the Bilston and Willenall Road. More Irishmen were attacked, but a large presence of police stopped things becoming even worse. Still, the crowd was so threatening that the military was put on standby. Further, outrages were perpetrated at Wensbury, where one Irishman had his eye knocked out, several had their skulls nearly fractured, Many were beaten till scarcely able to stand. There were also accounts of the contagion, as it was termed, spreading to Stafford and the Potteries. Both the English and Irish poor were victims of an unfair economic system that required a large pool of unskilled labourers to compete with each other for work and hence beat down wages. The few became rich off the backs of the many, but the understanding that all of the poor were exploited and had so much in common was blinded by the necessity of survival. Two years after the outrages, in the autumn of 1849, both the English and Irish poor of Bilston were devastated by a cholera epidemic that killed 730 people in six weeks. Insanitary conditions in the town were widespread. The Bilston Brook was described as the receptacle of many impurities and loathsome filth. Its drainage was very bad, whilst there were too few privies. In Wolverhampton Street alone, there were eight houses and no privy, the tenants having to use one in a neighbour's yard. One of those who strived to help all of those who suffered was Father Sherlock. 
the only priest at the Holy Trinity Roman Catholic Church. He was a heroic figure who carried the sick on his back to the hospital. John Denvere wrote a history of the Irish in Britain in 1892 and he praised Father Sherlock as one of the finest characters Ireland ever produced. Indeed, no man, priest or layman in England has done nobler service for the Irish cause. His mission was helped by the fact that he had been taught colloquial Irish by his old nurse, a knowledge which helped him when ministering in the black country to West of Ireland migrants. Who could speak nothing but Irish. So great were the numbers of the Irish in Bilston that between 1853 and 1861 there were 1,840 baptisms at Holy Trinity. However, in the later years of that decade, there was a rapid decline in local industry and a good deal of labour unrest. These adverse conditions precipitated a wholesale exodus of Irish workers, according to the history of Holy Trinity Church. There was also a marked outflow of Irish from Wensbury. Father George Montgomery, a Catholic convert, was sent there to minister to them, and it was he who raised the money to build St Mary's Church, which was opened in 1852. Father Montgomery became involved then in a bizarre effort to help his flock. Worried about the harsh living locally, he became convinced that a better life, both physically and spiritually, could be found in Brazil. In the events, 246 Wensbury Irish emigrated there, but sadly, the venture was a failure. Wolverhampton, however, continued to have a large Irish population, served by three Roman Catholic churches and the schools attached to them. Many of them, though, were unable to escape the dreadful environment of places like Caribbean Island. Belying its exotic name, this was no idyllic isle. Set not in warm seas, but in the heart of industrial Wolverhampton, it was a dreadful place in which to live. The houses and environment here were amongst the worst in the West Midlands, as was highlighted in 1843 in the report to the Commissioners on the Employment of Children. Stafford Street and Walsall Street were also in the town's Irish quarter. They were amongst the longest streets in the town, but were declaimed as two of the most disgraceful. There was no underground drainage and... The entire length of each always runs with filth or is stagnant in its dirt. In a one-roomed hovel in Stafford Street, a man, his wife and child slept alongside a donkey. And at the end of each of the courts and back houses, there was usually a common dunghill. Where everything is cast. When it rained, the dung seeped into the yard, so that... The slush in front of the doors is usually of the most disgusting kind. Six years later, the dire public health of Wolverhampton was brought to the fore by Robert Rawlinson. A noted sanitary reformer and engineer, he reported on the state of Wolverhampton, Bilston, Wensfield and Willenhall for the General Board of Health, which had been set up in 1848 following the passing of the first Public Health Act. The lack of sanitation was awful in much of Wolverhampton. Many streets had only surface drains, whilst pigsties, midden privies and stagnant ditches abounded. Indeed, large numbers of inhabitants were compelled to have soil tanks on their premises and, in some cases, under their very buildings to receive the soil from water closets, etc. These, of course, have frequently to be emptied and thereby create great nuisances to the proprietors and their neighbours. In not a few cases, and where parties neglect them, the liquid manure may be seen oozing through to the surface, stinking horribly. As for Caribbean Island itself, a Wolverhampton surgeon called Mr E.H. Coleman decried it as a loathsome neighbourhood from which typhus fever was rarely absent. 
Rawlinson concurred, declaring that it was a fever nest. Nearby, in Colescroft, Stafford Street, Rawlinson found that there was an average of more than nine people to a house compared to a local average of five. He observed that it was a rule that a district in a low sanitary condition is sure to become overcrowded. And the reverse is also true, namely that an overcrowded district will rapidly fall into a low or bad sanitary condition. Going on to Carberry Street, Rawlinson shrank from the unpaved and dirty surface and the two public privies which were so disgustingly filthy as to be unfitted for use. It was a similar wretched situation in Caribbean Island, disdainfully described as a congregation of ruinous cottages with no sewers, drains or water supply. An open gutter went along the passage between the houses. Or rather, the hole was an open gutter. And some of the houses were below the street level. As it was throughout England, those who had so little money had to pay a disproportionate amount of their income to live in horrible dwellings. Rawlinson was informed that a rent of one and sixpence, about seven and a half pence in new money, for an old house was common, and that many of the Irish were prepared to pay more than English tenants because they took in so many more lodgers. According to the 1851 census, there were 3,491 Irish people in Wolverhampton. The men worked mostly as miners, in the foundries or as bricklayers' labourers. Within the Midlands, only Birmingham, a bigger town, had more Irish folk. This figure made Wolverhampton one of the top 20 Irish towns in Britain. But as opposed to Birmingham, where the Irish made up just over 3% of the population, in Wolverhampton they were 7% of the total. This was higher than the figure for Edinburgh and close to that for the Lancashire textile towns of Bolton and Preston, where the Irish presence was much remarked upon. As elsewhere in England, many commentators blamed the Irish poor for their bad housing and unhealthy environment and condemned them for making their streets dangerous. Over in Birmingham, one author welcomed the disappearance of London Prentice Street in the late 19th century as the sweeping away of a nasty, dirty, stinking street in which children could learn lessons of depravity. And in 1863, a reporter from the Birmingham Gazette damned the people of the street as a mixture of the worst class of Irish and regular thieves. Other writers were as disparaging of Irish neighbourhoods. Writing in 1885, John Thackeray Bunce was delighted by the cutting of the new John Bright Street and other alterations behind New Street Station for... They swept away a series of narrow streets, close courts and confined passages, shut out from fresh air, imperfectly lighted, fetid with dirt, ill-supplied with water, and so inhabited that at one time, in the flourishing days of the Inkleys and Greens Village and the like, the police could not venture into them single-handed, while no family could dwell there without destruction to the sense of decency or peril to health and life. Yet it was the supposedly notorious Greens village that was the focus of the county and kinship networks of the sturdy Catholic emigrants from Ireland as praised by a local priest, Father Bowen. To those who lived there, it may have been dirty and polluted, but it was also a place of refuge and support. In a unique voice from the Irish poor of this period, Jay Goffey responded to the slur of criminality. He was resident at 13 London Prentice Street and explained that there was no more than one house harbouring thieves. He went on to object to the condemnation of 700 Irish for the evil doings of a few. 
It's likely that this man was James Gaffey, a second-generation Irish Brummie who was recorded in the 1851 census. His father, Patrick, had been born in Ireland and was a labourer and hockster, a small shopkeeper who sold everything. The mother of James was Susanna, who had been born in Birmingham. Most importantly, through their hard work on the building, in the fields and in mines, foundries and factories, the Irish of Greens Village, Caribbean Island, Blue Lane in Warsaw, Bilston and elsewhere played a vital role in making Birmingham and the Black Country one of the leading industrial regions in the world. Remarkably, that essential contribution was matched in the post-1945 redevelopments of Birmingham. From the 1860s, the Irish migrations of Birmingham had declined, as indeed it had elsewhere in Britain, as those leaving Ireland chose to move instead to America. But from the mid-1930s, many young Irish women came to the city to work as nurses. Their numbers increased during the Second World War, when there was a marked shortage of labour in Birmingham because so many young people were in the armed forces. This led major firms such as ICI and the Austin, as well as Birmingham City Transport Department, to send representatives to Ireland to recruit workers specifically. Then, after 1945, the demolition of blitz-ravaged Birmingham and the building of the new Birmingham owed much to the Irish. They were involved in a host of important projects, such as the clearance of the old ball ring and the construction of the new ball ring. Their involvement was as significant in the building of the rotunda, the digging of the tunnels to the inner ring road and the construction of Spaghetti Junction, whilst Irish workers were also active in a multitude of other operations, such as the knocking down of back-to-back -back houses and the building of new homes. With most Brummies preferring work in the factories, Birmingham could not have done without the Irish building workers, especially in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. Nor could the city have done without their predecessors in the mid-19th century. Justifiably, the Irish can claim with pride to have built Birmingham twice. You can learn about the vibrant, multicultural history of Birmingham in more audio podcasts by Carl Chin at our website, www.historywm.com Here you will also find a series of fascinating articles about the history of migration to the West Midlands. Just enter Migration into the search. And don't miss any of our regular new films, podcasts and articles. Simply register at the website for our free newsletter and download our podcast app, History West Midlands On Air, in the iTunes App Store.